Greetings, listeners in Interspace, and welcome to episode two of the Corona Chronicles. I'm Kate Pendry, and this podcast is a meander through the weird weeks of the Corona COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. Week two, March the 20th to March the 27th. All these online activities... How will we reverse that when the crisis is over? And will we need to? It was, of course, inevitable. Inevitable as the sun rising in the morning, that life would default to the internet more than ever before in week two of the lockdown. For Europeans, that is, or whatever one defines as Western civilization that crumbling concept full of self-hammering identity politics and colonial shame. In Europe, the murmurs of who started this spread of disease were like gurgles in the stomach after a meal containing possibly rotten meat or cankerous fish. The gurgles might just be shifts of air and matter, or they might herald a gastrointestinal tsunami. That said, it's been a long time since there were any real revolutions in the world, no? Most rumbles are just that. The storm never really breaks, not like in the movies. Blaming Corona on any one group or nation was tempting for some. Trump did his usual predictably mind-numbingly blame of any non-white group in wrath-spitting distance and blamed the Chinese. The truth was that in Europe, the disease was spread by the wealthy, those who essentially had the means to travel and to ski and after-ski and stumble-bum home riddled with disease. It sounded familiar to gay men and enlightened straits born in the 60s, grown and tempered by the plague mass of HIV and AIDS in the 80s. Who can get it? I can't get it. Only the queers can get it, or only the old can get it, or only those already vulnerable can get it. The truth is, and it is an absolute truth, not even on a sliding scale, anyone can get it, or rather it can get anyone, given the right circumstances. The Monday after the lockdown, some artists began whispering, I'm having a great time. Don't tell anyone, but I feel, you know, the pressure's been lifted. The city's quiet. I can think. I can think about art. Others said, well, it's fucking pointless. The overnight shutdown of the theatre, film and live music industries didn't so much send a shockwave as drop a cartoon comedy hundred-ton weight on those communities. Already beleaguered, accused of being pointless and profitless by the right wing, some artists now felt flattened and squashed. What the hell was the point? We get it. We're not wanted. We're not essential. It's time to give up. Everyone's going online anyway to binge-watch and twiddle knobs and tap away. The live arts are dead. 
Others looked to history and genesis, and found not catastrophe, but possibility. The first hint that the corona pandemic of 2020 might afford a time to experiment, necessity being the mother of invention and adaptation. How to reinvent? The positive artist said, Listen, it's so the opposite of pointless, making art right now, and you must listen to me because I am very important and clever and I am always right. Even if it doesn't feel like it, you damn well fake it, boy. Or else. I know I'm right about this. The crisis will be over sooner than you think, and everything will be very, very weird, and lots of people will have opinions, and a lot of our citizens' rights will seem to have disappeared, and some will have materialised, and people will dance in the streets, yet there will be an emptiness in some people's souls because something changed, and suddenly being a property developer or a stockbroker isn't cool anymore, but being a checkout lady or a tram driver or even an artist is cool in Corona, baby. Does anyone say cool anymore? You see, the world is turning upside down. You've got to be ready with an artistic response and a commentary when that time comes. All of this, this isolation, this quarantine, this hiatus, it's all just preparation. So musicians were the first to get on board and began live-streaming concerts from their living rooms. In Norway, Brakkesyke, translated as quarantine sickness, was the online portal where musicians, or any performer in theory, could promote their at-home concerts. One fey, Byron-esque Norwegian troubadour made $20,000 in online donations during one one-hour concert on his couch, guitar-strumming in week two of the lockdown. He didn't need the money, so he donated it all to Doctors Without Borders. Other musicians did need the money, very, very badly. And in the first few days, people were happy to donate to anyone who picked up an instrument and pointed their phone at themselves. The quality of the concerts was bizarrely poor on the whole, and stumbly and unprofessional. Even the professionals couldn't seem to figure out how to make things work. Chris Martin, in spinal tap fashion, but without irony, mumbling at his iPhone, Is this thing on? In Norway, the corona crisis law was enabled. The pandemic was churning out good band names, if nothing else. In typically Scandinavian style, the authorities murmured, There are a number of places where people are not following the communicable diseases guidelines. Whereas in Austria, in Vienna, the cops were almost arresting people for not following the guidelines, in Oslo the council threatened to close the pubs if people didn't behave. To true meschenkestop, literally to threaten to stop serving, in a country that needs the promise of booze as a way to get out of its Nordic depressive bed of a morning, 
was a very serious thing to do. That said, what country on the planet doesn't self-medicate with booze or drugs or money or sex or religion or food? So it's really very unfair to single out the Norwegians as somehow being more privileged and yet more weak when it comes to sucking on the sick, sweet teat of its addictions. The lazy comparisons between nations and nationalities, which were so easy before corona, got a bit stickier in week two of the pandemic. Countries suddenly had far more that they shared than that divided them. People reminded themselves that you should be really careful what you wish for. In the UK, the government urged responsible shopping. Toilet paper remained the big item of choice for newbie hoarders. The subject of hilarious memes, it was hard to know if the hoarding of toilet paper was just a meme or if there was actual hoarding of toilet paper going on. The hoarding mentality isn't logical, of course. It's just equivocally part of the basic instinct. Grab whatever's in sight that seems to be connected to vital functions. Yeast, pasta, bog roll. There was still plenty of fruit and veg in the supermarkets, but no one was hoarding that. People weren't so much bowing to the ancient primal as prepping for some bad doomsday movie. Again, knee-jerk reactions. Panic buying. The UK government did not detail what responsible shopping entailed, much as it never gave any specifics when it came to its responsible drinking campaigns at the turn of the 2000s, in an attempt to curb the horrible and destructive binge-drinking culture that seemed to have slowly not just gripped the nation, but become an ineluctable part of its national identity. But a more important question in week two was why did Russia, population of 144 million, suddenly announce that it had fewer coronavirus cases than Luxembourg? Internationally, there was a reluctant acknowledgement of the efficiency of a dictatorship when it comes to disease and curbing its enthusiasm. That said, no real or perhaps reliable information seemed to be coming from Russia, and no one outside of Russia really cared that much. Russia slammed its borders shut, like everyone else did, but it did it more forcibly, less politely. And that kind of robust leadership in the face of disease was grudgingly acknowledged. Still, the only reason the rest of the world knew that Russia had less corona infections than Luxembourg was because Russia had said so. Did nation-states' propaganda machines have more veracity during corona than before corona? Did people want to believe it was true? That Russia had it under control before it got out of control? That anyone at all had it under control anywhere in the world? The World Health Organization cozied up to the teen technologies and suggested that WhatsApp could be used for 
testing and identification of cases, tracing contacts, isolation, these are all measures that WHO proposes and recommends and they were already in place all the time with WhatsApp, a spokeswoman said. Cynicism seemed to be taking a back seat, as even hardened sceptics of social tech threw themselves onto the jolly bouncy castle of technology will save us hedonism. Everything was going online. It may have felt like it was already all online before Corona, but people really clung to their tech now, like folk thinking that they're drowning in three feet of water. You had to get with it and go with it, or you would rue the day. Fear and exhilarated scrambles for survival were the order of week two. It was still, however, coming very, very slowly, and then all of a sudden. Later in that week, WhatsApp got scary. Another spokesperson said, The platform is being used to spread messages that often contain a mixture of accurate and misleading claims that have been debunked by medical experts. The problem is now so acute that world leaders are urging people to stop sharing unverified information using the app. I am urging everyone please to stop sharing unverified info on WhatsApp groups, Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar said on Monday in week two on Twitter. These messages are scaring and confusing people and causing real damage. Please get your info from official trusted sources. Nobody had the energy to point out how low civilization had sunk, that during an abnormal red alert pandemic, citizens should get their information from reliable and trusted sources. When corona is over, presumably, we can all go back to unreliable and untrustworthy sources. Because it really is as simple as that. In week two, alarming reports started coming from Brazil, amongst other places, that house helps, maids, cleaners and housekeepers were being made redundant at a minute's notice, in many cases without any form of economic support from their employers. The employers, in the main wealthy and privileged, were condemning their staff to hunger and disease without a gram of conscience. The rich man's disease was also a disease the rich could quarantine themselves against by banishing the poor to whatever fate lay in store for them. It was every man and woman for his or herself. The Titanic bobbed to the collective memory surface for a moment, where first-class passengers violently elbowed the poor and already desperate down metal stairs into the water-logging holds. The rich sat entitled in the lifeboats, every man for himself. Back in Norway, the cabin wars of week one had turned into a rosy love fest. Holiday cabin owners, who had migrated en masse to their often luxury vacation huts, were turned on by locals who understandably didn't want the privileged city folk invading the small communities whose local healthcare systems would 
collapse under the weight of urban lemmings wanting to do their isolations out in the lovely nature, like it was a bloody holiday. In week two, the cabin owners did a humble U-turn and stopped going to their cabins. Possibly this was because they feared being met by pitchfork-wielding mobs rather than any profound sense of social solidarity. The newspapers praised them for their humility and the fact that they were taking the situation seriously. Again, this said much about modern life that adults in Corona are rewarded for being able to behave with a modicum of intelligence and decency. In Austria, within a week of the massive lockdown, researchers at the Complexity Science Hub in Vienna stated, Wir sehen eine Trendewende. We are witnessing that the tide is turning. Die Kurve flache sich ab, der Bewegungsradius der Bevölkerung sei stark Gesunken. The curve is flattening out. The radius of the movement of the population has decreased significantly. This radical and hopeful statement was issued without exclamation marks. The CSH is an organization that bundles, coordinates and advances the research of complex systems, system analysis and big data science in Austria. Scary in peacetime, the C-A-S-H, but confidence-inspiring in corona time. Another example of everything looking different, depending on its context. Austrian newspapers added as a piquant footnote that at the same time as Austria was on top of things in week two, Almost 800 people had died on one Saturday in Italy alone, and similar disasters were looming in other countries. Was this true? It was true. But correlation does not imply causation, as we all know. Austria's successful control of corona didn't need to imply that Italy was failing, did it? Back in Oslo, the city finally closed the pubs. The council was unequivocal and uncharacteristically stern in its statement, to wit, Brud på smittevannareglene i serveringsbranschen i Halge gör att Oslo nå stänger kranene. Breaches of the communicable disease regulations within the alcohol-serving industry at the weekend have led to the beer taps being turned off. No other councils in the country had been forced to take that measure. Oslo folk had behaved boldly and badly, as if the rules did not apply to them, and like teenagers, they were grounded. Meanwhile, in America, the left wing were dusting off Naomi Klein and hoisting her back on the old whistleblower pedestal, re-releasing disaster capitalism and shock doctrines in a corona context. What is disaster capitalism? What is its relationship to the shock doctrine, they asked. The way they defined disaster capitalism was straightforward. 
it describes the way that private industries spring up to directly profit from large-scale crises. The implication being that the pandemic would fuel the war profiteers. People who were already on board with shock doctrine got fired up, but those who hadn't heard of it, of course, or didn't believe in it, were not going to be swayed. Generally, those who spoke of disaster and conspiracy during week two just deepened a lot of normal people's fears without offering any solution to the overnight lockdown of society. People were scared. Suggesting overturning capitalism and fighting the power was an out-of-step and out-of-tune call to war. People had no work. Were worried that there would be no financial support from the government. They were truly afraid of the disease and not being able to put bread on the table. They were frightened and tired. They were not in the mood for another Facebook revolution. In fact, Donald Trump was just as likely to get traction as Naomi Klein in week two, with his behaving as if the situation was not a public health crisis, but rather a crisis of perception and a potential problem for his re-election. Whether the focus was shifted to disaster capitalists or to the untrustworthy mainstream media, the big-picture distractions, which once held sway in America, seemed less potent. People wanted to look at the little picture, the small details, the day-to-day, the hour-to-hour, the very, very realness of the situation pushed the roaring bluster into the background for a day or two. Also in week two, the philosophers and podcasters started embroidering their mantras. Some said, when we're tested by crises, we either regress and fall apart, or we grow up and find reserves of strength and compassion we didn't know we were capable of. This will be one of those tests. Other philosophers said, hey, never let a good crisis go to waste, whatever that meant. But still, Naomi Klein didn't give up. She was eloquent, but sounded scary. A Cassandra Klein predicting catastrophe. These are the perfect conditions for the governments and the global elite to implement political agendas that would otherwise be met with great opposition if we weren't all so disoriented. Of course, by saying this, she was doing exactly what she accused the global elites of doing, exploiting the pandemic. It's just that she was blaming capitalism for it. She was correct, but she left out an uncomfortable truth. Capitalism was also responsible for why people were not dying and why vaccines in the future would help people to live. A lot of people realised in week two that capitalism is the lover that you can't live with and that you can't live without. It's the one that will give you the clap and the one that will also take you to the clinic to have your penicillin shots. In week two, Herd immunity was the big face palm for countries who had chosen suppression during lockdown. It 
was madness. Suppression strategy was the only way, they said. The hammer and the dance slam it down, then gently ease it up. Controlled movement, not anarchic mayhem. Nobody really knew what to do, but some people seemed to know what to do, yet under it all was the dread confusion of the common man and woman. This corona is a fact thing. It can't be a perception thing. There is no try. There is do or do not do. Suppress or do not suppress. But why would neighbouring countries in a tiny spit of a continent like Europe seem to randomly decide on such wildly different strategies? Who the hell was in charge of all of this? The world was finally united against a common enemy, wasn't it? So why were countries still at odds? The fact is, week two was a liminal phase. The place between two stages. The sticky glue place that holds things together or drops things apart. The liminal phase would last for longer than anyone could imagine. By Monday the 24th of March, some people were becoming aware of the Victorian erotique of flirting, but not being able to touch. Schools, theatres, all shut down, hairdressers, restaurants too, at least in many countries. These things were all understandable, easy to grasp, to imagine and enact. But what of the myriad social interactions that did not have legislation or injunctions imposed? Quite simply, could people still fuck? Or could they only fuck people that they'd been fucking before corona? To be blunt, could you fuck new people? Obviously not, if the letter of the law or regulation was followed. But some countries talked about no more than five people gathering in one place. It would be a few more days before specific metric distances were laid down. So technically, there was a liminal stage during week two of lockdown where orgies were still within the boundaries, as long as they didn't involve more than five people. As always, humans tried to bend the rules. Not bend them so much that they broke, but just enough to not feel restricted. Corona, of course, was still not obedient to human regulations. Corona didn't know that it was a communicable disease, that it would have been outlawed if it was possible. Corona didn't know that one metre was good, two metres better. It was, and is, one of the remarkable idiocies of the corona pandemic, that human beings en masse the general public, just assume that the coronavirus is in some impeachment stage and is aware of that, that it's going along with our rules about it, as if it's part of our system. Of course, another irony 
is that it is not in the virus's interest to kill too many people. How many is too many? Is the $64,000 question. But as far as the virus is concerned, it needs a live host to do its spreading. And in that sense, Corona COVID-19 and the way it behaves should be a paradigm that is very, very familiar to the Western societies that it is infecting. Of course, it impacted non-Western societies as well, but those apples are their apples and not our apples, and we've already got more apples to juggle with than we're comfortable with, so, you know. One question that arose was whether rape statistics had gone down in week two. What with people off the streets in Austria and Germany and China was opportunity denied? Or did it just move behind closed doors? Did anyone care either way? Or were there still more important things to think about? Did the general crime rate go down, seeing as everyone was at home, making it impossible for burglars to do their job? Or was it too soon to tell? The meetings that were broadcast, the daily press conferences, the distant staging of principal characters, the isolation choreographies of our leaders, suddenly there was space in between everything and everyone. Terrifying little small talks could also be heard here and there, pop-up columns and threads along the lines of, is this all really necessary? Yes, we must be patient and have ice in the stomach, as the Vikings used to say. Stoic, calm, perseverance. How long would it be before the ageing monarchs of Europe made speeches to their people, asking them to keep calm and carry on, just like we did in the war? It's all about avoiding death. Or is it? Because the real question is, is corona that lethal? No, please, just run it by us again. Why are we grinding the world to a halt? Why have we lost our jobs? Our livelihoods? Is it this or die? Or is it rather, as it seems, this or a few old people die? Oh, it's not about old people dying, it's about the healthcare system collapsing. If too many old people don't die, I don't understand. This isn't the United States. We have a socialist health system, robust and pumped, at least in Scandinavia, in Austria, in Germany. The UK, of course, well, everybody knows the UK health system is underfunded and burdened. So, but still, is it really worth it? This frightening and unpleasant radicalising of our society as we know it. A national dugnad, internationally. Dugnad, that very Norwegian concept, 
dugnad. It's untranslatable, really, and for a reason. It means the coming together of people for a common good, like weeding of the communal gardens, or cleaning beaches, or being obedient to the communicable disease regulations. Keeping a distance. Respect the national quarantine rules. Veldig, veldig viktig. Vask hendene ofte. Very, very important. Wash your hands. Often. The main concerns in week two, immediately, were the juggling of paradoxes. Close businesses down, yet keep businesses afloat. Finding solutions for problems that have not yet arisen. We stand at crossroads. But not even. Perhaps. Maybe. Likely. Unlikely. Possibly. We might be standing at crossroads in two weeks, or three weeks, or one month, and then we might go left, or right, or straight on in one month, or in two months, but not in two weeks, or in three weeks, but maybe in four weeks. Authorities demanded the impossible of any group of human beings. Be patient. Your worst fears may be realised, but you're not allowed to do anything about that. We can't even confirm that your worst fears are the fears that you should be fearing. It may be that a whole different set of fears leading to catastrophe are on your horizon, but we don't know that for sure, and we're asking you to stay home. We're telling you to stay home, but don't go to sleep. Your government is not really in control. Good luck, citizens. In week two in Oslo... Some young arsehole who knew he was infected with corona went to a party where he infected a whole bunch of other people. He was fined 20,000 krona or 2,000 euro. Meanwhile in Brazil, a 64-year-old housekeeper died in hospital, suffocating on the fluid in her lungs after her wealthy employer threw her out of work and a place to live on day one of the lockdown. Two thousand euros. A fine for a wealthy young man in the north, not vulnerable, not at risk, exercising his right to party. Two thousand euro. The equivalent of five months' wages for a housekeeper in Brazil. But no matter. She didn't need her wages. After she was sacked, she only lived for ten days. Please be sensible. Don't go to parties, the Norwegian government continued to bleat at its young, who were still going to parties. This was like asking the Waffen SS not to traipse mud on the carpet, please when they come to take you away. Norwegians continued also to increase their alcohol consumption in week two, happily standing in queues of over a hundred people outside the state-run liquor stores. Occasionally they would stand one metre apart, but more often than not, distracted by their mobile phones, they would stand closer, 
This was the right to party. The numbers said it all. In a normal winter week, 1.4 million litres of alcohol are usually sold through the state-run liquor stores in Norway. In the first week of lockdown, that figure went up to 2.1 million litres. And the people started drinking. And then the cabin wars kicked off again as the obedient cabin owners started to do U-turns and claimed that, hold on a minute, they'd been thinking and forbidding them the right to go to their holiday cabins during the pandemic was, well, quite frankly, and this is a direct quote, it was a breach of human rights. And of course, people began squabbling on social media, now that they had time on their hands. Not that they didn't squabble on social media before, but the coming together and shock of the first week had clearly now begun to subside. And yet, in week two of the global pandemic, 85% of the population of most countries in Europe said that they trusted their government in the handling of the disease. That was actually a beautiful moment. In Sweden, of course, Polling the people to see whether they trusted the government wasn't an issue because things were just business as usual. Sweden had chosen the herd immunity strategy. Open the salad bars, keep the hot yoga studios going, hairdressers, bars, clubs, cafes. They had chosen a very different strategy, a let-the-heavens-fall strategy. Their geographical neighbours were horrified and derisive. How could the Swedes be so stupid, so reckless? Only time would tell. Back in the UK, the holiday home wars had erupted, as locals in seaside towns and quaint villages scrawled, tourists please go home, on hastily made signs and in the sand on the beaches, as Second homeowners continued to flee the cities to decamp to the countryside. And in the cities, when the hell did fashion become essential to a lockdown? Tragedy turned to farce, as high street chains like Topshop and Next scrapped minimum spends on outfits and offered free home deliveries. And staff were forced to work, despite all the stores being closed. Meanwhile, back in America, Madonna continued to bang the final nails into the coffin of her career by singing into a hairbrush on an Insta story and telling her fans, and indeed anyone who would listen, that Corona is the great equaliser. Tone deaf on so many metaphorical and literal levels, Madonna became yet another victim of corona vanity and utter lack of perspective. But who did have a perspective? The Dalai Lama? He was strangely silent. Barack Obama? Well, he'd already put in his time as daddy healer, and he simply wasn't there to help anymore. And so it was left to Madonna to comfort us, an excellent example of just how bizarre 
things had become. You have been listening to the Corona Chronicles. This podcast was produced by Seashell Media with original music by Ivan Strumstar. I am Kate Pendry, wishing you good health. Until next time. Thank you.